know after two RPGs have just been fired them. So I need to move. But there's so much incoming rounds, say 9,000 rounds a minute coming in. I was like, that's just not survivable. There's like half percent here, no chance there. I have to go with a half percent. Hello and welcome to Hurdles. This episode is part one of an extreme sports mini-series where I have a selection of experienced athletes that are going to shine the light on their extreme sports. Hurdles discusses the physical, mental and emotional hurdles that successful people need to overcome. I shall question and delve into their mindset which allowed them to achieve, allowing you, the listener, to relate. On episode one of this mini-series, we are joined by Andy Guest. Andy pioneered the sport of base jumping, a sport in which people propel themselves from fixed objects. Andy has also done 6,548 skydives with five world records, two European records and 19 British records. We also discuss his incredible mindset about comfort zones and we talk about the time he was caught in a crossfire filming in the Afghanistan war. Don't forget to follow Hurdles Podcast and let's get straight into it. You been keeping well? Yeah, just busy, currently writing a second book, so I'm typing away like mad. Gosh. Trying to get it finished by the um, end of February, just in time for the summer season. Impressive. Really appreciate it. Was, uh, just reading your uh, your background and it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. You've achieved a lot. I've been busy. <laughs> I'd love to see a CV of yours if you were applying to be a skydiving instructor somewhere. I think it, you'd have a scroll, wouldn't you? A little bit, yeah. So... Andy, for those who don't know what base jumping is, there's nowhere else that we can really start other than base jumping. What What is it? Base jumping is all about jumping off fixed objects. So you've got the B for building, A for aerial, it's like a TV mast, S for span, which covers a bridge, E, earth, which covers a cliff, and that gets your base. To qualify for membership, you need to do one jump of each of those objects. Once you've completed the four jumps, then you can apply for your membership. Sounds crazy. Where were your first four jumps? Well, my very first jump was to El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, which just seemed a crazy thing to do. And because of my fear of heights, what I find with like an aeroplane, because we're so high, you don't relate the height. But to stand on the cliff, you're going to relate height. And I needed to know, could I do it, having seen the films of people jumping off it back in 1980. So I went over to America and this put myself to the to the test. It's everything what I was expecting. It's frightening. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you just revealed that you've got a fear of heights having done six and a half thousand skydives and all your achievements in base jumping, which we'll go on to. That's crazy. It does seem crazy. Um, and the base jump is definitely mentally challenging. Um, and at that time, the word base didn't exist. It's just skydivers jumping off a cliff. It wasn't until 1981, which is something like six months later, that a friend of mine received this letter from Carol Bonish, who was the founder of BASE, and he just mentioned the letter they created this thing called BASE. Uh, and it's definitely mentally challenging in the early days, and that's where I started to learn this thing about mind games. Yeah, definitely. That When you're still on top of that cliff in Yosemite doing your first jump, what was, what was going through your head? Why did you want to do that to yourself? Well, the first thought in my head was... What a stupid idea of coming over in the first place. <laughs> but, you know, when you stood there and you've got other people around you, you know, and I was like, 
I really can't walk away. No one I've got witnesses. Yeah. And you just go to the mind game, okay. Once I'm over the edge, I'm committed. Then it's just a question of sorting it. And there's plenty of fight. You know, we're doing a 10 second delay. Five seconds is going to be what we call tracking. You alter your body position and you start moving horizontal across the ground to get your distance away from the cliff face. So I just thought it's just a question of committing, you know. And five seconds, you don't actually move because you haven't got enough speed. Really? You just. So though I adopted the position, nothing was happening. I was like, this is not good. This is not good. Then as soon as I hit five seconds, it just felt like something kicked me out of the rear end. I just felt myself accelerating forwards. So you were you organized the first ever British base jump. As you said, you wanted to, to do some pioneering yourself and three other people joined you. I mean, it is just as extreme as it gets. I mean, I'm doing extreme sports for this mini project. Do you think there's a sport more extreme than base jumping? No, it's definitely out there. It is considered one of some extreme sports. And there are high risks. You, know, you can pack the parachute the same way every time, but your exit position is incorrect and you say you're one shoulder down. Since that parachute opens, you're going to induce a turn. With the load altitude stuff, you haven't got much clearance from the, the fixed object. It's not like a high base jump. Low ones, you're quite close. Really can't afford to have that parachute opening off heading. But how the UK one came about, my brother came back from the States. I said to him, how'd you go in the States? And he said, oh, yeah, really well. I've got 30 jumps out of an aeroplane. <laughs> I said, hang on. So why did you say that? He said, what? I said, you said 30 jumps out of an aeroplane. You wouldn't say that. You'd just say, I did 30 jumps. But you didn't. You specifically said out of an aeroplane. What have you been up to? I, I half expected him to say he just jumped out of Capitan. But instead, he said, I jumped a TV aerial. I was like, what? The TV aerial? I said, how high was it? He said, the lonely feet. I said, you're mad. Yeah. And that's what I thought about it. And one day we sat there having coffee. I said, Pete, this TV aerial you jumped in America, we don't have them in the UK, do we? And he said, wait here. He went to his car, came back. My brother's a pilot, he's got a pilot's map. And they're all listed. <laughs> I was like, can I borrow that? <laughs> and that started the journey. I was on my motorbike, a Honda Super Dream 250, traveling around the south of England, just looking at all these miles. I was like, oh, that's no good. That's coming out of a building. And oh, that's no good. It's a concrete job. And I came over this little ridge, listening to my Sonny Walkman with Boston playing more than a feeling. And I said, Sonny saw this TV and I was like, oh my word. And the butterflies kicked in. And I parked out the motorbike, walked around the base of it. I was like, this is the one. And my heart was thumping just thinking about it, you know. I doubt your brother got his map back. It was a very handy map. <laughs> to actually see the height. But the day he came and we actually jumped in, you know, and it was just, well, it was everything I thought. I mean, again, hey heights, climbing an eight-inch foot ladder was freaking me out. I was on my hands and knees every rest platform, taking deep breaths. Don't rush, take your time, take your time, look at the horizon, just keep climbing. That is, it sounds insane, like unjustified. So you, um, as we said, pioneered the sport of base jumping and you came up with the idea of how to pack the parachute for 
such a fast opening and you did the lowest jump in the world at the time off Clifton Suspension Bridge and the packing method worked thankfully as you had predicted but being the pioneer of all of these crazy events you must have had some what-ifs in your head before how did you feel before each of these events knowing that it hadn't been done before? That's a good question and the answer to that is definitely and if you look at the the packing method how that came about Frank had done our capitan so we had the letter E we've just done the aerial so we had the letter of A so we knew we had two more jumps to do to get this membership to the base association and we thought we've got nothing in the UK that's high we're gonna to have to fly back to America to do the building uh, to do the, the the bridge and then one day someone came out to me said Andy when you do this canopy stacking my background on the skydiving side being a Royal Marines we used to do canopy stacking where you link up the parachutes and the question he had was when you have a hard dock you grab hold of the parachute and the whole thing collapses and the guy shouts out let me go when you let him go how far does he fall? I went, oh, no, more than 30 feet. I'm going to go. And I went straight up to Frank. I've oh, just cracked altitude base jumping. So what are you on about? So when we packed the parachute, we got the square material, what we call a slider, and that's to slow the opening down. So we don't want a slow opening. We want a fast opening. So leave it down. So we hit the Clifton with the idea being we're over a river. Worst possible case, most of that parachute should be inflated by the time we hit the river. Should be survivable. But again, should be, it's not, will be. And so we hit the, the Clifton and exactly as I predicted, 35 meters of bridge were fully inflated. So we just knew, we've cracked it. Three weeks later, we went up to London. We hit a building at 330 foot. And the building was like, again, standing on the edge of an object looking over the side, I was like, man, this is so, so crazy, you know. I've done one test jump off this bridge. Was I just lucky? <laughs> or is that going to be a consistent thing? Yeah. And it's like, well, this is what separates the pioneers, the people that kind of follow. Have to take that step. Yeah, I couldn't agree. took a deep breath and left. Yeah, because once you've committed to a certain extent, you just have to fully, fully go for it, don't you? You do. And so if you go back to the Clifton, before I'd done the Clifton, I had other skydivers. I was showing them the packing method and I was like, tell me why this wouldn't work. So I was asking other people's opinions. Perhaps they might think of something that I hadn't, you know, which I hadn't thought of. But no one could give me a reason why that parachute shouldn't open. What you tend to learn is you get voices in your head. It's like an Irish parliament. You know, your half voice is saying, Go for it. This is what makes you the, the person. You go the other half side, don't be so stupid. Look at the risk factor, walk away. And you find yourself evaluating everything again. Does the packing method work? Have I done this? Have I done that? I've done my safety checks. You know, what what can go wrong? Eventually you, you feel I've answered all the questions. There's nothing there that's saying that it won't work. So I'm not gambling. By all accounts, the odds are in my favor. And you find you go through a phase where what we call the moment, all the voices stop in your head, complete calmness comes over to you and you just turn and say, I'm ready, I'm off. And then you go. And that's where you've got to kind of wait for is that moment where everything calms down in your head and your thought process is clear. 
What if the moment never comes? I've had that. You turn around 180 and you walk away and say, today's not the day. Really? When did you have to do that? I did that on the cliff. Because I borrowed some kit. You know, and, and this, again, Skydiving kit, this kit was so rough looking. I was looking at it, that's the most untidy thing I've ever seen. And the parachute wasn't mine, so I was like, how's it going to open? It's going to open the stall, so instead of going forwards, it might go backwards, which I can't afford to have on the cliff. And the first time around, I was like, no. And again, on that day, my brother did the first ever British cliff jump. So I used all my adrenaline watching my brother jump this cliff, because the very first one to do it in the UK. By the time it was my turn, I had nothing left for myself. I stood there for like 15 minutes. And my other brother said, you don't have to go, you know, it's too right out there. <laughs> I turned around and walked away. And as soon as I walked away, I was thinking, you know, oh, that's not right, you bottled it, you know. And two weeks later, after coming back off the oil rigs, I went straight down there, set the whole thing up and jumped off. Wow. And that secured me Bruce-based one, European-based one. Yeah. And it was a race for that. Because we got to stage other people because of the new packing method that started in the UK. So it's no longer the four of us. There's about nine of us. We all got to the stage. Most people just needed the cliff to secure that, that membership. So that is, it's, it's a great, it's a great story. I mean, you think of it now and you think that is still so far fetched and so extreme and such a niche. But then when there was four of you and then nine of you with equipment that wasn't even specifically made for that sport, do you think there is something different about you and others that do extreme sports to try these things? Or do you think it's just the way you act? I think it comes down to people mentally, in the sense, in stressful environments, some people shut down. The thought process has stopped. They're just frozen. Other people are able to think through it. So they're in a stressful environment. You can just say to yourself, right, pause, think about it, go back through it, come up with an answer, think quickly, and then you're ready for it. And that's what I've noticed in life. People are different. Some just can't cope with it. Some people can. I think it's the ones that can tend to find that they've got this driven thing to push themselves, to test themselves. And once you've tested yourself that once, you're hooked then, aren't you? You can't, you can't stop. It's a rush. You know, it's such an adrenaline rush. It is addictive. But it does get to a point, if you do a lot in a short period of time, and it's a fact of life, the more time you spend outside your comfort zone, it becomes your comfort zone. So I got to the stage in base jumping it wasn't a massive adrenaline rush. To me, it was like high board diving, but instead of landing in water, my parachute would be opening. And I'd land, look, I'll go, well, that's another one out of the way. <laughs> I wasn't getting that, that massive adrenaline thing because I'd done so much in a short period of time. Yeah, I remember when I did my skydive just a few weeks back and I was chatting to the instructors and I was, I was saying, do you, do you get any nerves at all now? And they were saying, it's just every day. It's just every day now. And that concept baffles me. When we were speaking the other day, 
and you said you've done the first night base jump in November 1981. That is astonishing. Were you were you tracked from the grounds? Like, please say more. Well, so that's the, the first UK night one. Not worldwide, but UK one. Okay. Um, and that only came about because I was going to do it during the day, but it was too windy. So I said, right, I'm going to come back tonight. And I came back tonight and I said to my friend, it still feels windy. He said, oh, no, that's only up here. There's nothing down there on the landing area. I said, you reckon? He said, oh, yeah, totally. So I'm starting to think, is it my bottle that I'm looking for excuses to be able to walk away, you know? And you do find yourself looking for excuses to justify why you can walk away and keep your head up high. I was thinking, well, he doesn't think it's windy. It must be my bottle. I said, okay, I'm going for it. As soon as I leapt off, the parachute opened. He was lying. It was windy. Oh, no. <laughs> and I overshot the landing area in pitch blackness. I was, and all I had was the person on the ground with a torch to light up the ground. So I lost them. And I ended up landing in the River Avon, oh, doing breaststroke in the water in freezing cold water. So. It's a, it's a different world, extreme sports. There's a reason why they're extreme. I, I can't even comprehend it. Do you think that the way you are in terms of when you said you've got the voices in your head and you're talking about your nerve and the fact that you just have to shut it out and, and wait for the moment, does that translate into everyday life for you? In some aspects. One, I can appreciate now that um, if you talk about management, for instance, you know, so okay being a member of staff being told what to do and suddenly being the person in charge running it. And all I learned in, in the sense was, well, this is outside my comfort zone. But in time, it will become my comfort zone. Going back to those early days, you know, even my fellow skydivers, you know, instead of saying, oh, well done, that's brilliant. They were like, you're an idiot. You're a nutcase. You're a rebel. You know, I even had a governing body at one stage threatening to ban me for life, you know, from the, the sport of skydiving, something I love dearly. I said, look, guys, parasending, they use parachutes. You don't govern them. You're skydiving. Base jumping, we use parachutes, but we're not skydiving, we're base jumping. And they laughed and said, you think that sport's going to take off? So I know it's going to take off, but you have to do it to understand why. So all of those days when I got classed as a rebel, idiot and all that, now they come up to me and say, you're a legend. Same people. So what happens over a time period from going from an idiot, 35, 40 years later, you become a legend. Was that the biggest hurdle then in, in making base jumping, the fact that people thought you were an idiot and, re, and you were ridiculed? Was that the biggest hurdle in making it or was it the, the equipment, the, the fact that it had never been done before? It's just the objects and the equipment. I wouldn't say it's people because... Uh, I just totally ignore them, you know. Just because they don't agree doesn't mean they're right, you know. Um, for my side, well, I've actually done it, so I can see both sides. You can only see one side because you've never done it. It's the same when I started the skydiving school. I had so many people say to me, and I'm really worried, you know, the, the skydiving school, it's not going to work. Great, you're creating a business, go for it. That's really supportive. Everyone just said it won't work, mate. You know, and then like six years down the road, when I got 
successful skydiving school, they said, I said it would work. I was like, you did, you know. Well, that's changed the tune. You didn't it five years ago. So you've just got to believe in yourself and go forwards. And now you can apply that to all aspects of life. You know, just got to believe in yourself. No, definitely. I think that's great advice and, and one that all people will give, especially in extreme sport. You've always got to learn from your lessons. You're constantly learning, you know. It's like on a cliff. A cliff is normally 180 in the sense that if you have a parachute open in a certain direction, you're going to click, climb to the cliff. But if you look at a building, go for the corner, then you've got 270 clearance, not 180, 270. So you need to actually think about what you're doing and analysing it, you know. When I look at a cliff, quite often you can say, a good runner will propel you further away from the cliff. But then I look at the, the terrain. Is it grass? Am I going to slip the wrong moment? So you're constantly analysing how you're going to tackle things. One of the biggest dangers in base jumping, it's not so much to jump, it's your landing area. So a lot of times you're jumping in very confined spaces. So your canopy control has to be superb. As soon as the parish opens, you need to know how to tackle it. You can't go through sensory overload. It's the wrong time to go through sensory overload. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, oh no. I've never had sensory overload. I've had to think twice, uh, twice, think very fast at times. In a sense, one of the jumps I did off a cliff, borrowed parachute. The brake setting was deep. So the parachute, instead of opening and going forwards, it opened and went backwards. As soon as it opened, I was just reaching up for the toggles and I just noticed the parachute, the cliff face, instead of going away from me, was actually coming towards me. So I quickly changed from going from the toggles to hitting the front riders, pulling it down. As soon as I got a bit of distance forward, let me go quickly fire the brakes, release the parachute, and so I could go at full speed. Call for quick reactions. And the biggest one I had was the night jump off a building in London. Again, early days of the equipment. You always worry about the brake settings. It's like half speed. If one of the toggles should accidentally get released, that parachute is going to spin and you're going to collide with the structure. So I was paranoid about a brake accidentally firing. So I would daisy chain. So you know, like six daisy chains, you go da 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 and it releases. The problem with that was I was so paranoid. When I did the building jump, I went to release the brakes. One fired and one locked off, jammed. So turn the parachute 90 degrees left. So went over this dual carriageway, going through people's back gardens at night. So to quickly find an area to land. And I picked one garden that had swings and slides in, so that was obstacles in itself. I was using one toggle to flare the parachute and using my other hand to flare on the back riser. And I got a tiptoe landing. When I landed, I was like, that's <laughs> just fast reactions. And currency is everything. The more current you are, the quicker you react to things. If, if you were to translate that into, say, a, a normal person's life, is that is that the brakes going on the motorway? It could well be, you know. Um, in a sense, you suddenly realise there's an issue in four, four you on the motorway. You just hit your brakes, so you start thinking, plan B, veer left. How do I avoid the obstacles? So you can hit your brakes and carry on sliding and hit the object, yeah. That experience there, you're obviously lucky that you're able to think 
so quickly and so experienced to get yourself out of but throughout your pioneering journey of base jumping you must have had some significant failures with with the stakes on the line what would you say has been your your biggest failure when pioneering base jumping i can't say any failures because you're still here today i'm still here today i can (laughs) say that there has been a time where i made a stupid stupid decision yeah and now it's down to male ego, which is really? one of the things you shouldn't have in, in anything you do that's got high risk. And I had this young lady who's going to do a base jump. You stood on the edge of the cliff and you've only done a couple of other base jumps. But she stood there for too long and I said, okay, step away. Today's not the day for you. She said, no, no I'll go. I said, no, today's not your day. Some days it's not just right. So I walked away. She said, you walked away. So I've walked away on occasions. And she walked away. I said, right, I've got a night cliff jump to do for my world night base. I picked full moon night. I said, right, so go down to the bottom. When it's right for me to jump, I whistle, put the car headlights on so I can see the of the ground. And this is in the gorge. And she went down and I waited. And eventually the darkness came in, the moon came up. Instead of the moon being on my left-hand side to shine in the gorge, it was behind me. I looked in the gorge with... That is like a coal cellar. It's pitch black. And I was thinking, this is not right. Walk away. And I was like, if I walk away, how does it look to her? And I said, I'm trying to get her to jump. And I've walked away. <laughs> that doesn't look good. And I just went, I'll sort it. And I jumped in pitch blackness. You know? And the car headlights, they started turning the engine on and having a key. And I had two dim lights just lighting in front of the car. As it was, it worked out. I actually ended up flying over the car down those two little headlights, got tipped to a landing. You know. For part of the canopy control, I was just in pitch blackness, going, turn now, turn now. That seems even blacker. That must be the cliff face. Turn even more. And it's more luck than anything that it all worked out. When I landed, I was like, you idiot. What the hell is that about? Male ego. Base jumping's not got a place for male ego. Oh, you know. And I pride myself that I made good judgments. Now it's a terrible judgment, you know. But again, I learned from it, you know. If that happened again, not to go down that road. That that is the thing with extreme sports. There is no room for trial and error because if you make a mistake in a rugby game, the other team might score. If you make a mistake in the football game, you might get sent off. But if you make a mistake in extreme sports, your life is on the line. And that's what I find the most remarkable about it all. And that's very true. And... My friend Frank, who I mentioned earlier, he actually died on the base jump. Oh, he died off a building in London. And I was working in the Oryx at the time, and I got a Sun newspaper, opened it, and it just had uh, skydiver plummets to death as the headline. And I was looking at a picture of the building. I said, like, I recognise that building. This is not a skydive. This is a base jump. It's only four of us base jumping. It's not me. So it's one of the other three. And then I carried on reading and I saw it was Frank. And as soon as I got back to the mainland, I met up with the guys. I said, what the hell happened? You know, so I couldn't get around my head around. How could the parachute not work? We proved it would work. So what caused it not to work? So what they told me was basically, he went on to the building with a German, American and a British guy. He died, you're base jumping here, all of them. And as he got to the rooftop, his container popped open, the parachute fell out. 
And they went, oh, that's unlucky, mate. No, you're off the load. He said, no, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And he closed it back up again. And when he went to the edge, he jumped, but no one checked him. And he closed the container, he used a cord. He had used the cord to close the container, forgot to take the cord out. So when he jumped, the starter line came away, but the container was jammed shut. So nothing came out. And I, my chin just dropped. And I was like, who the hell checked him? There's no one did. I said, Am I hearing this? No one checked him. I said, these are one shoot jumps. There is no second chances. Everyone, everyone gets checked before they jump off that building. Double check just to make no silly mistakes. And they said, well, he was an experienced guy. So I don't care what his experience. Everyone gets checked. I said, tell you what, guys, you go your way, I'm going to go my way. Yeah. And to this day, I'm still angry that he was killed because no one checked him. It was a stupid mistake. Yeah. Everyone should get a flight line check as we do in skydiving, just to make sure no silly mistakes. Yeah. Unfortunately, you say they made a mistake. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, did that ever deter you at all that experience that happened to Frank no I definitely had a lot of thinking you know, the next time I was on the the edge but Frank loved it as much as I loved it you know and I could just imagine I was talking to Frank and said mate don't give up I made a mistake you know so he would have not have told me to stop he would just carry on the same with skydiving you know someone you know is killed in skydiving um doesn't deter you it's the one thing you love you know so moving on from your incredible resume in uh base jumping isn't it doesn't end there does it you've done 45 years of skydiving and to date you've done 6548 jumps is that right yes five world records two European records and 19 British records. That's some resume. What were the five world records? To do with canopy stacking. Actually building the stacks. What is canopy stacking if you were to explain it to a normal person? You fly your parachute over and you connect with the other guy's parachute. So you hook your feet around the lines, slide down the lines, then on the risers, we put a cord in between the two risers and it acts as an anchor point. So you put your feet in between the two risers and underneath a cord. So when the next guy docks, you start to get a bit of weight. It stops you sliding back up again. And we've got the world record. First time around, um, 13 of us hooked up. So we took, took the record off the Americans. First time they'd ever been taken off the Americans. Then the Americans got it back again. Then we got it back again. We could have a record twice. But we finally came back a following you. We've got the world record of 24, which has never been beaten. Surely there's so much room for error. Because if, if oh. your foot gets tangled in the wrong place or anything, you're well done. Now, this is why when you're in one of these formations, your ears are like radar. Did I have a bit of a screen there? Did someone shout, let go? <laughs> What's that noise there? Um, and you think on the diamond formation, if one of the top parachutes collapses, it's like when you build up your playing cards in the stack and it collapses, the whole lot comes down. That's what happens. So it's a question whether you can release. Sometimes you can't. Another parachute hit you and go over you, so you go, you're entangled. 
So you need to try and sort yourself out, communicate with the other guy. So you're not going to leave anyone in the lurch. And you release your parachute, you go back into free fall and then open your reserve. Yeah. And again, high risk situation. What you can't afford to do is go through sensory overload, start pulling handles in the wrong sequence or making the wrong decisions. You need to say, right, stop, think about this. It must be so satisfying being a pioneer of any sport. Just being the first person, you could say forever, you were the first person to achieve so many great things. I do, I do feel fortunate that I had the opportunity in the sense if someone started base jumping now, it's all taken care of. You have schools to teach them how to do it, the do's and the don'ts. You have equipment specialising for the actual job, so it's all good stuff now. Would you say you're the most distinguished in base and skydumping, the most distinguished person? No. In a sense, I, mean, I get a lot of respect for the early base jumping, but there's guys out there now with 2,000 base jumps. You know, people nowadays are pushing things way, way extreme, far more extreme than I would consider. Are um, you in contact with those people? Because they couldn't do what they do today or probably wouldn't be doing it now had it not been for your innovation. That's one of the favourite comments I normally receive on Facebook. You know, it would be a comment like, you know, thanks to you guys who pioneered it, it's enabled me to do the sport I'd love to do. And that so makes sense. Really I mean, that is kind of nice, you know, that they recognise what we did in the early days. Well, uh, I... Sorry, go on, Karen. I was just going to say, from my side, it's like someone takes up skydiving. I love the fact when someone takes up skydiving and enjoys my sport that gave me so much. I like the idea of someone base jumping who can experience and enjoy what I got out of it. And it, it does your character a world of good. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, later on, but it's a, it's a perfect time to bring it in now. Do you think that your extreme sports has made your character into something more favourable and how you are today? Or do you think your character made you love extreme sports? I'm a firm believer, the sense of adventure, I think it's in the genes. I'm sure it comes down to your genes, you know. Um, and all I do is inherit it from my, my, my father. Uh, my two brothers are exactly the same. Both my two brothers are also qualified for base. We're both skydivers, you know. My older brother is world base number 22. My second brother's well based in 69, so their numbers are considered extremely low, you know. But there's three brothers, and to, to this day, the guy who runs the base organization said, You're the only three brothers that have qualified for base. That's the character building side, it's like joining the Royal Marines. People say, Oh, do the Marines make you what you are? I said, what? No, I had to have had it in me before I joined the Marines. To pass through the Royal Marines Commander course. Yeah. I think what the, the skydiving side did for me was help with the mind games and overcoming things. So, like in the Royal Marines thing, you might be doing a 30 mile yomp, you know, and you're just going through the night and carrying a lot of weight. And being an, a lightweight small guy, it's like carrying a guy in a fireman's carry. You know, at least you look at the big guys and think, God, look at you, you know. One of your steps is like two of mine. But when it came to speed marches, 
I'll be quite fast. The big guys will be struggling. So it swings and roundabouts. But on the load car, I used to say to myself, look, you know, as tired as I'm feeling, exhausted, just put one foot in front of the other, because at some point someone's just going to say, stop, and it's over. And they do a thing on the 30-mile load carry. You come over the ridge, and you've got your four-ton vehicles, the transport, all parked up. And the morale lifts. Everyone says, there's the, there's, there's the transport, finishing line. Everyone's perked up. But then you walk straight past. <laughs> Keep walking. And you're looking at you. That's when you start to see grown men cry. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> they play with your mind game, you know. And I think that's what helped me with the skydiving side. I started to learn how to work with the mind games. And that helped me with the marine side, you know. Just keep going. Never say no, don't cave in. The moment you start thinking negative, you're on a slippery slope, you need to throw it out of your head. So I'm not even going to think about that. That's out, you know. Just focus on what's ahead of you. Take it as it comes. That's brilliant. You can definitely see the uh, the overlapping characteristics, and I suppose you then treat your you act in life the same way, just one day at a time, one step in front of the other, because one day, yeah, it all will come to well, an end. I'm a firm believer. Always think positive, because thinking negative achieves nothing. So why think negative? You know, I could be in a building that's completely on fire or surrounding. I've still been thinking there must be some way out of here. Rather than start thinking negative, I'm doomed. You're constantly looking things ahead of you. Always think positive. And a lot of times you think about things, oh, this could happen, that could happen. It'll never happen. So why put yourself through all that stress and something that never happened? So I'm a firm believer, cross that bridge when I come to it. If it happens, then I'll deal with it. Then I'll think about it. But I won't think about it now because it may never happen. And that's my outlook in life. I think a lot of people can learn a lot of lessons from that because having achieved what you've achieved, you've, you've certainly backed up that mindset with, with what you've accomplished. One thing that I, um, when you sent me this email and we spoke before, I really, really wanted to ask about was your freelance camera work in Afghanistan. So you told me that you filmed in the war in Afghanistan in 1981 when the Russians were there. You said you were blown up, had to run through three armoured vehicles, heavy machine guns firing 9,000 rounds a minute, and somehow came out unscratched, but only saved your life and are still here on this podcast because of the camera filming it. Well, the way that came about, my second brother, Ken, left the Marines, and he wanted to get into camera work. But in those days, you needed an equity card to be able to do camera work. And it's almost like a closed shop environment. But what he discovered was the fact when it came to war zones, equity were quite happy for footage to be shown on TV because their own members didn't want to go to war zones. So he bought a one-way ticket, flew off to Pakistan, climbed the mountains into Afghanistan, got the footage, came back, sold his footage to the TV networks, and he was planning to go back again. And I had left the Marines first time around. He said, uh, oh, just a one adventure, just listen to his stories, a one adventure. And he said, look, I'm going back again, but I need someone to carry some equipment. Do you want to come along? My mistake wasn't thinking the bigger picture. I just said, yeah, I'll come. <laughs> Rather thinking the big picture. Some strange reason, I 
picture of my brother, this big camera, huge lens on the hill, filming the, the battle in the far distance, not realizing small camera, short lens, and he films from the front. So that's a bit of a shock. I should have asked more questions before I went. And on that particular day, we were just sleeping on the, the track out in the open. And there was a bit of a commotion going on. And my brother said, can you hear something? I said, I can hear vehicles. He said, the only people who got vehicles around here are the Russians here. And all the Muslims were starting to run around. So we like grabbed all the gear. We were running down, down towards the, uh, where the noise was coming from. And we came around this building. This just I came around this building. And rounds hit the building that was right next to me. And you know, probably going back to my rings training, the next thing I did was hit the deck, plowed my face, thrown in the ground. I was like, whoa, that was close. There's another guy in front of me. But everyone else has gone around the corner. We'd have been left behind. And the guy in front of me just jumped up, ran around the corner, and I saw all the rounds impact the corner of the building. I was like, oh, you're lucky so-and-so. There was another burst. And what I noticed on the wall next to me, the rounds hitting the wall were getting lower, getting lower. And I suddenly realised they're using the wall for the fall of shot to come down on me. So if I stay, they're going to eventually come down, and I'm going to get hit. I need to go. And as soon as the fire burst stopped, I just left, so I ran, let's go around the corner, I was around the corner, I was like, whoa, that was close. And I was like, where's everyone? And my brother appeared, said, where you been? I was like, come on, I need this lens. Said, well, there's your lens. So we came racing forward and we got amongst these buildings. And the Russians were coming down the road in the armored vehicles and just machine gunning the whole area, just putting firepower all the way down, because again, the old people firing at them. We got behind the closest buildings and there's a guy called Homeini, who was the leader, he crawled out on open ground. I was like, mate, you are mad. No cover, open ground, you're dead. Makes no sense. My brother Ken said to me, is your camera rolling? I said, yeah, camera's rolling. And he looked at Khomeini, gave the thumbs up, and just learned to have an RPG. <laughs> we watched his rocket go, and it went up over the top of an armored vehicle. So he missed. I was like, how the heck do you miss on 200 meters? They're not taught to use the weapons. So he wasn't using the sights. He was just aiming in that direction. The Russian firepower went down. So interesting, thinking they're looking. So by now I'm hugging this embankment. And behind me, I didn't see this coming. A guy jumped on an RPG, fired another RPG, which went past me. That one missed, but the back blast kicked up the dust. And the Russians went there. So the maneuver three vehicles put crossfire. And that world just disintegrated. I mean, my feet were like, horizontals, Huggins embankment, trying to breathe out, thinking think thin. The rounds go past you, the supersonic, so you get this crack, and all you could do is constantly blink. And I was trying to suck everything in. I was like, this is bad. This is just so bad, it's unbelievable. I've got Bronson twigs landing on my head. I'm watching the dirt literally impacting the rounds six inches away from my feet, trying to think small. Then I could hear one vehicle moving. I was like, he's moving. The longer I stay here, it's fatal. Because sooner or later, I'm going to be looking at the turret and shouting out BBC, ain't going to cut it. Now, after two RPGs have just been fired them. So I need to move. But there's so much incoming round, say 9,000 rounds a minute coming in. I was like, that's just not survivable. There's like half percent here, no chance there. I have to go with a half percent, but I'm going to get hit. And I was fully in, expecting to get hit in the back. I just turned to one step and there's a and next thing I know, I was completely airborne. 
landed on my back. Didn't have a clue what just happened, but I done a complete somersault. Picked myself up. I was like, which way do I go? I just saw this path and I go for the path. And so I ran through there, everything just kicking up around me, rounds go past my head, church kicking up. I'm dropping stuff. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going. And I got on this track. And the crazy thing was, there's people stood there with hands in the head. I'm like, what are you doing? You should be diving for cover. And I had a young lad in front of me and he was blocking my path. And I was out running him. I was like, mate, you're running too slow. <laughs> so I sidestepped him to go in the ditch. And as I sidestepped him, I just heard a stout thud and all the air get knocked out of him as he went down. So if I hadn't taken that sidestep, I'm the one on the court around. I picked myself back onto the path. Path in 19, I was like, I'm out of time. I'm so out of time. I've got no choice. I'm going to have to go for that wall. I just took two more steps and led as hard as I could for this wall. And to my surprise, I actually landed on top of the wall. Momentum carried me over to the other side. And I was like, <laughs> then we regrouped in this house compound. And I suddenly realised, where's my brother? Oh, no. no we went and the Homanian survived, which amazed me. And I went up to him. And I don't speak Pashtun. I was going, uh, oh, no, no, two, 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 two. And he called someone over, spoke to him. The guy looked at me and just shook his head. I was like, oh, what? What am I going to tell mum? This is not good. So I sent him to go, oh, I need to go back. Yeah, and he nodded. And full credit to him, he was actually taking me back, back to the location where we just had the firefight. And all I was after was to confirm, had my brother been hit? Yeah. And as we got to that bend in the path, my brother came out from this cornfield. I said, like, where have you been? He said, I couldn't cross the path. There's so many rounds coming in. I had to stay on the other side to go to the cornfield. And then I realised when I was going to the cornfield, I was moving the cornfield. So the Russians were putting rounds through the cornfield. So they did something to crawl. And I got to this compound, I sat there. My eyes, like pupils and like saucers. Yeah. I said, Ken, seriously, we nearly got wasted there. And he said to me, Andrew, now you say that. If you think of World War II, how many bullets were fired to how many people that got hit? The odds are in your favour. I looked in disbelief and said, Ken, 10 minutes ago, I did not think it was in my favour. Yeah. And I took a picture of him and his eyes were normal, but mine were like saucers. Yeah. Because he'd been in that environment before, he kind of got used to it. Well, for me, it was just a complete shock, you know, because I've never been in, in a firefight before. But, yeah, that's, that's a story to tell. That's insanity. Yeah. In your lifetime, you've almost been like a cat with nine lives. You've survived that. You've survived entanglement thousands of feet in the air, and you've still not been affected by it. That sh surely shows that people that do these extreme sports are just almost a different breed. People who do extreme sports think it out. Most of them, 99% of them, will think it through. It's not rash decisions. Everything's analysed. It's all planned. Yeah. But certain elements in your life are not planned. The question they should be asking is, how do I do that? Because the moment you say, can I do that? you're already starting to build up walls as to why you can't do it. So the way to approach is, how do I do it? And that's the route you should take. And that's, that's where you're going to advance on things. Completely agree. What has been your best experience in the entirety of your career? It's not too many. 
Yeah. Was it Jumping Blackpool Tower beating the security system? No, you did it illegally. Uh, no, it, well, I'm glad you said that. Here's the thing. Tell me why anyone should create a law on something you can never imagine people doing. The only reason I could give against would be health and safety. But that's so a base jump. Do it, therefore, no law has been created. So it's not illegal. So if you look at Blackwell Tower, all I can say is I looked around and there's no sign there to say I had to take the lift down. If the police get involved, they'll find there's no law against it. Trespass, trespass restriction doesn't exist unless you do criminal damage. So if you haven't done any damage, you haven't broken any law. But what the police would do, when they really realise there's no law against it, they'll say, public disturbance. Oh, what? You're disturbing the peace. What? And there's the case uh, on the Clifton Suspension Bridge. There was a bylaw about throwing objects off the bridge. There's a £10 fine. But one guy said, well, hang on. If I pay the £10 fine, I get a criminal record. That could affect my career. So he fought in, he went to court, and he said, look, the bylaw is quite clear, and I'm not denying that. It says it's against the law to throw an object off a bridge. My argument is, I never threw an object off, I stepped off. <laughs> and the judge went, he's quite right. I ruled in his favour. Wow. Court case dismissed, because he's not throwing an object off, he stepped off. Was your case at Blackpool Tower ever taken to court? No, no, no. Uh, clean, clean getaway. Just had to security guards. The interesting thing in the Blackpool Tower, and some of, some of it is, is the game that you can play with this side, you know, uh, which can also can make the fun. You got the security man on the door. So how do you get past the security man? Well, a friend was doing it with me. So I sent him and his girlfriend across the road to the holiday tourist shops to get the kiss me quick hats to look like a holiday maker, a really bad what we consider holiday grockle. So they did that. So I would go through the front door, we would pass another security guard, but carrying nothing. Yes, he was at the door, positioned himself next to the security man and had his girlfriend say to him, oh, take me to the Blackpool, tell the Blackpool tower. He said, no. Oh, I said, oh, please take me. He said, no, I'm not going to take you. And they had an argument in front of the security man. And he stepped and said, don't be so miserable. Tell your girlfriend to the top. He said, I would do, but I don't leave the bag anywhere. Take your bag with you. And in the bag was two parachutes. No, so we got that no. one in, got to the top, and the very top you got, you can walk outside where the railings are. You got CCTV cameras. But on one side, there's the blind spot. You take two steps back, cameras can't see you, your blind spot. This is where you put your gear on. So I was like, okay, get the two rigs out of the, the bag, lean against the wall, give the bag to Jackie, turn the back down again, and off she went. I said, right, let's get a gear on. He said, oh, mate. He said, uh, I want to say goodbye to, to Jackie. I went, oh, mate, we ain't got time for the Be quick. He was coming down the stairs to where the lift was, and she had already gone. And the lift man was there with a security guy. And he said, have you seen two guys with black leather jackets? And the lift man said, I haven't actually. The girl's gone down. Funny enough, that bag didn't look as big as it was when it came out. And he came running up the stairs and said, Andy, yeah, and he told me what happened. I said, right, OK, well, what are we going to do? Before I could say another word, the security man walked down the corner, looked at me, looked at the bag, looked at me and said, excuse me, mate, how fast are over there? He says, what? So that building in the distance, how fast is that? He said, that's about 30 miles. 
said, no way, that's 30 miles. How far is that over there? When did they build this structure? That's amazing. They couldn't have any fair fights. I kept them talking about 10 minutes. I said, oh, thank you very much. You've been really, really kind talking to me about all these things. He said, I think nothing of it. He said, I went back downstairs. <laughs> and I looked at Charles, mate, in three minutes, he's going to realise you forgot to check the bags. Quick. We quickly got the kit on. I gave him a check out. So give me a check. Got a carabiner. It's on staffing lines. You're right. On the corner. You're on the right. On the left. Are you ready? <laughs> and he said, mate, you're looking at someone that's so scared. I said, mate, my heart's thumping like mad. Let's do it. And we just ran to the corner, leapt up the wall, threw the carabiner of the railing, clipped it, scrambled to the top. We both stood in the corner and the voice went, oh, you get down. I was like, where did that come from? He says, that CCTV camera, it's got a speaker system. I said, oh, so he's in his office below us watching. He's a bit like them, isn't he? And he's like, go with us, mate, I'm off. And I just leapt off. And I said to him, when we jump, so I said to him, well, when we jump, keep it quiet. And I jumped open, farmer brakes, was flying down towards the beach. I had the second parachute over and I heard, yee -haw! I was like, oh, that's not very quiet. Everyone's no. looking up there. And we landed on the beach, we ran along the beach, passed the moment the donkeys, out these flight of stairs. As we were crossing the road, I got a page in the distance, I got security crossing the road the other side. So I was going one side, they were going the other side. As soon as we got to the car, open boot, we threw the parachute in, slammed the boot, and we walked to it. I said, mate, evidence is gone. That's it. Even if we meet the people, they can't do anything because the evidence isn't there. I was like giggling schoolboys, you know. Went for culture, just couldn't stop giggling, laughing. And he went back inside. I said, where are you going? He said, oh, wait, I'll tell you. I was like, I'm not sure where we should be going back. And he went back inside, came back out, and he had two certificates to see we'd been brave enough to go to the top of Blackwater. <laughs> That's brilliant. Andy, you've been an absolute pleasure. And some of your stories are insane. I expect you're a great dinner, dinner party guest. Well, no, I was tend to be quiet. <laughs> Really? Yeah, other people do that. Like, parties, I like to see other people go, I'll just have my my, my pint and I'll, that'll, that'll be fine. Well, thank, thank you so much for doing this and I'm going to edit it up and put some music where it needs to be and I'll um, I'll send it your way. Well, what I'm going to do when I get home, uh, won't be too long, I'll send you some pictures, I'll send you some video clips, uh, then you've got something there. you got the evidence. And that's right. The link to the document where you can see Andy as he pioneers the sport of base jumping is in the description for the podcast. There are some crazy stories in there and I still find it baffling that he would leap off objects without knowing for sure that he would be safe as he trialled all the equipment. Andy emphasises that any of us can achieve if we step outside of our comfort zone. His definition of greatness at the start was scuppered and we usually ask our guests about their opinion of greatness and hurdles. As he reinforced throughout, his opinion of greatness was to make whatever scares you your comfort zone over and over again. That's all we have time for at Hurdles today. Join us in episode 2 where we speak to Ashley Watson who made history with the Olympic bobsleigh team by qualifying for the four-man event for the first time in 24 years, mirroring the iconic cool runnings. Don't forget to follow Hurdles Podcast on at Hurdles Podcast on all social media. Once again, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.